Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Wednesday, February 28th, 2024 edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Food Safety Gaps Let Children Eat Toxic Applesauce by Christina Jewett and Will Fitzgibbon. Cinnamon-flavored applesauce pouches sold in grocery and dollar stores last year poisoned hundreds of American children with extremely high doses of lead leaving anxious parents to watch for signs of brain damage, developmental delays, and seizures. The Food and Drug Administration, citing Ecuadorian investigators, said a spice grinder was likely responsible for the contamination, and said the quick recall of 3 million applesauce pouches protected the food supply. But hundreds of pages of documents obtained by the New York Times and the nonprofit health newsroom The Examination, along with interviews with government and company officials in multiple countries, show that in the weeks and months before the recall, the tainted applesauce sailed through a series of checkpoints in a food safety system meant to protect American consumers. The documents and interviews offer the clearest accounting to date of the most widespread toxic exposure in food marketed to young children in decades. Children in 44 states ate the tainted applesauce, some of which contained lead at extraordinarily high levels. Time and again, the tainted cinnamon went untested and undiscovered, the result of an overstretched FDA and a food safety law that gives companies, at home and abroad, wide latitude on what toxins to look for and whether to test. It's amazing in a bad sense what a catastrophic failure this was, said Neil Fortin, director of the Institute for Food Laws and Regulations at Michigan State University. Largely, the food supply regulatory system is based on an honor system. The cinnamon originated in Sri Lanka and was shipped to Ecuador, where it was ground into a powder. It was probably there, the FDA has said, that the cinnamon was likely contaminated with lead chromate, a powder that is sometimes illegally used to tint or bulk up spices. The ground cinnamon was then sold, bagged, and sold again to a company called Food, which blended it into applesauce and shipped pouches to the United States. It was sold under the brand name Wanabana and various generic store labels. Food never tested the cinnamon or its tainted applesauce for lead before shipping it to the United States. The company said it relied on a certificate from a supplier, saying the cinnamon was virtually lead-free, records show. In a statement, the supplier, Negasmart, did not discuss that certification, but said it had complied with all regulations and quality standards. The FDA can inspect food companies that ship to the United States, but even as food imports soared to record levels in 2022, international inspections fell far short of targets set by law. American inspectors had not visited Food in five years, records show. Companies have the responsibility to take steps to assure that the products they manufacture are not contaminated with unsafe levels of heavy metals, Jim Jones, the top FDA food official, said in a statement. The agency's job is to help the industry comply and hold those who evade these requirements accountable as appropriate. The FDA says it has no authority to investigate far down the international supply chain. Records show that the Ecuadorian government had the authority but not the capacity. Ecuadorian regulators had never before tested cinnamon for toxins, and, when the FDA called looking for help, nearly half of the government's lab equipment was out of service, said Daniel Sanchez, the head of Ecuador's food safety agency. Private safety audits commissioned by American importers are supposed to provide another layer of protection, but audits typically only look for the hazards that the importers themselves have identified. None of the importers would say whether they considered lead a risk or tested for it, and it is unclear what, if any, steps they took but none blocked the applesauce. Records show one auditor gave the applesauce maker an A-plus safety rating in December, as American children were being poisoned. 
The FDA has the power to test food arriving at the border. There's no indication that anyone tested the applesauce when it arrived at ports in Miami and Baltimore. Inspectors conduct about half as many such tests as they did a decade ago. The FDA said it plans to analyze the incident and whether it needs to seek new powers from Congress to prevent future outbreaks. Federal regulations have warned for years about the risk of tampering with food ingredients. Changes to the food safety system were born out of a late 2000s scandal in China, where people used cheap, toxic melamine powder in place of protein powder in baby formula and pet food. Six babies in China and hundreds of dogs in the United States died. As new laws on imported food took shape, lobbyists for grocery stores and food companies worked to weaken them. Scott Faber, a former lobbyist for the Grocery Manufacturers Association, recalls fending off proposals for more sampling, testing, and reporting. Our argument at the time was that too much product would be destroyed if you had to do more testing and sampling, Mr. Faber said. And clearly, babies and toddlers are paying the price for the industry's success. He is now a senior official at the Environmental Working Group, where he advocates stricter oversight of the food supply. Heather Garlich, a spokeswoman for the Food Industry Association, FMI, declined to comment on the applesauce recall. The U.S. is a global leader in food safety due to strong government oversight, critical public-private partnerships, and industry initiatives, Ms. Garlich said. Food safety policy is always a balancing act. It would be impossible for FDA agents to open every imported crate of producer spices and test for every possible contaminant. Every new requirement on companies adds cost to the food. But critics like Mr. Faber say the FDA has ceded too much oversight to the companies. The Food Safety Modernization Act, signed into law in 2011 by President Barack Obama, gave the FDA the power to recall food, trace produce, and reject food from foreign companies that turn away American inspectors. One major change was to require importers to audit their suppliers. Exactly how those companies acted during the applesauce incident remains unclear. FDA data shows that thousands of importers do not audit appropriately. The law did not come close to putting the FDA, which oversees shelf-stable food, cheese, and fresh produce, on par with the Department of Agriculture, the other major food regulator. Agriculture inspectors work inside every American meat processing plant and allow meat imports only from countries with rigorous safety systems. The FDA asked Congress in 2022 for the authority to set heavy metal limits and require baby food makers to test for them, changes that might have prevented last year's poisoning. Congress did not act. A mother demands answers. The tainted applesauce might have gone unnoticed for even longer had it not been for a family in North Carolina. Early last summer, Nicole Peterson and Thomas Duong were alarmed by their young children's blood lead levels in a routine screening. Within weeks, the levels had doubled. Ms. Peterson said the couple worked with the local health department as they tried to determine what could be hurting their children. We weren't sleeping and we're not eating, like this is driving us crazy, said Ms. Peterson. She and her husband are suing Dollar Tree, where they bought the applesauce and Wanabana, a U.S. distributor led by Austria food officers. A Dollar Tree spokeswoman said the company is committed to the safety of the products it sells. Austria food said that it relied on its supplier certification and that none of its other products have been recalled. Their three-year-old daughter, a fierce bright girl who loves twirly dresses and nail polish, had a blood lead level of 24 micrograms per deciliter, nearly seven times the CDC's level of concern. Her younger brother, an easygoing toddler who loves noisy trucks and dance music, had reached a level of 21. Public health investigators searched their home and daycare, but failed to find the source. When the parents' blood tests came back normal, they began to suspect one food that only the children ate, foil pouches of cinnamon applesauce. 
North Carolina health officials tested them and found extraordinarily high lead levels. That prompted the FDA to act. Searching for the source. In late October, Oster Food recalled millions of applesauce pouches. The FDA has said it believes that this measure eliminated the tainted cinnamon from the U.S. food supply. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that more than 400 infants and toddlers were poisoned. The median test result was six times the level found in the water crisis caused by lead pipes a decade ago in Flint, Michigan. The exposure in Flint was more sustained, and its long-term effects have proven difficult to quantify. But years later, the number of students in the city who qualified for special education doubled. Earlier this month, the FDA said that Ecuadorian investigators believed the cinnamon was likely contaminated by Carlos Aguilera, who ran a spice mill. The Ecuadorian health agency filed an administrative complaint against Mr. Aguilera, saying he had operated without a permit and used broken machinery that increased the risk of impurities, records show. The complaint is pending. Ecuadorian officials took packaged cinnamon from Mr. Aguilera's customers that tested positive for lead, according to inspection reports and interviews. But investigators found no contaminated cinnamon at Mr. Aguilera's plant, records show. In an interview with reporters, he denied adding lead chromate. Ostrofood is not explicitly required to test its products for lead. Under FDA regulations, companies must only identify likely food safety hazards and develop plans to address them. Ostrofood had a plan, but lead was not among its anticipated risks, according to FDA records. After the lead poisoning, the FDA cited Ostrofood for failing to identify lead as a hazard, agency records show. Where was the FDA? The industry was never supposed to entirely police itself. The food safety law called for the FDA to increase oversight and conduct about 19,000 international food inspections annually. The agency never came close to that target. Last year, records show that regulators conducted about 1,200 overseas inspections, visiting less than 1% of FDA-registered international food makers. When the Government Accountability Office flagged the problem in 2015, the FDA cited insufficient funding and questioned the usefulness of conducting that many inspections. The Accountability Office recently said it was still waiting for the FDA to say what it considered the appropriate number of inspections. U.S. officials inspected Ostrofood in 2019. It's not clear what testing they conducted, but trade records show that the company was not exporting cinnamon products to the United States, so the spice was not likely a factor in that inspection. Regulators found no problem that they advised fixing, records show. Inspectors did not return until the lead poisoning was discovered nearly five years later. There's no record of the FDA ever inspecting the original source of the cinnamon, the Sri Lanka-based Simaji Spice Exports. Nanda Kohana, the company's marketing director, said the company conducted its own lead tests. None of the other companies in the cinnamon supply chain were eligible for FDA inspections because they do not ship directly to the United States. I think the missing piece is having a totally independent regulatory agency checking up on the process, going in and doing inspections, said Sarah Sorcher. Director of Regulatory Affairs for the Center for Science in the Public Interest. Ms. Peterson, the North Carolina mother whose persistence touched off the search, said she was relieved when the applesauce was discovered as the source of lead, but her family is now watching closely for developmental delays in their children. Even low levels of lead exposure in children have been linked to hyperactivity, mood swings, and deficits in reading and social skills. We just hope at the end of the day that our kids are healthy and can stay healthy, she said. They shouldn't have to worry about what they eat. No one should. Cyber attack on Optum Unit disrupts prescription orders by Reed Abelson. 
A cyber attack on a unit affiliated with United Healthcare, the nation's largest insurer, has disrupted drug prescription orders at thousands of pharmacies for about a week. The assault on the unit, Change Healthcare, a division of United's Optum, was discovered last Wednesday. The attack appeared to be by a foreign country, according to two senior federal law enforcement officials, who expressed alarm at the extent of the disruption on Monday. United Health Group, the conglomerate, sent in a federal filing that it had been forced to disconnect some of Change Healthcare's vast digital network from its clients, and as of Tuesday had not been able to restore all of those services. The company has not yet provided any timetable for when it may be able to reconnect. Change handles some 15 billion transactions a year, representing as many as one in three U.S. patient records, and involving not just prescriptions, but dental, clinical, and other medical needs. The company was acquired by United Health Group for $13 billion in 2022. This latest attack underscores the vulnerability of healthcare data, especially patients' personal information, including their private medical records. Hundreds of breaches at hospitals, health plans, and doctor's offices are being investigated, according to federal records. Federal officials say they are closely monitoring the situation. This incident serves as yet another reminder of the interconnectedness of the domestic healthcare ecosystem and of the urgency of strengthening cybersecurity resiliency across the ecosystem, said Jeff Nesbitt, a spokesman for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which said it is in touch with other federal agencies. In this case, the disturbance has been widespread, including for U.S. military overseas. Change acts as a digital intermediary that helps pharmacies verify a patient's insurance coverage for their prescriptions, and some reports indicate that people have been forced to pay in cash. Last week, after United Health found out about what it described as a suspected nation-state-associated cybersecurity threat actor targeting change, the company shut down several services, including those allowing pharmacies to quickly check what a patient owes for medication. Some hospitals and physician groups that rely on change for billing to get paid may also be affected. Large drugstore chains like Walgreens say that the effects have been limited, but many smaller outfits say that they rely on change whenever they handle a prescription for someone with insurance. For the last week, it has been hit or miss about whether we can take care of patients, said Dared Price, who operates seven pharmacies in Kansas. While patients can pay cash if the medication is inexpensive, he says that some of his customers have been unable to obtain more costly treatments for flu or COVID because their insurance status is unclear. It's a debacle, he said. TRICARE, which covers the U.S. military, said its pharmacies in the United States and abroad are being forced to fill prescriptions manually. It continued to warn people this week of possible delays in getting medications. In a statement issued Monday night, Change said it had worked closely with customers and clients to ensure people have access to the medication and the care they need. The company said the vast majority of pharmacies had found ways to continue filling prescriptions, adding on Tuesday that its volume of claims had returned to normal levels. The company said that only a tiny fraction of its own customers had reported problems getting their medications. Details about the attack, including whether any personal patient information has been stolen, are limited. Change has been making brief periodic updates on its website. On Monday, the company reiterated that the affected services would likely be unavailable for at least another day. It also emphasized that it had a high level of confidence that other parts of United's businesses were not targeted in the attack. But there's little question that United, whose sprawling businesses touch nearly every aspect of healthcare, made for a particularly rich target. If you're going after stealing records, you want to go after the biggest pot of records you can get, said Fred Langston, the chief product officer for Critical Insight, a cybersecurity firm. You're literally hitting the jackpot. The motives of the attacker are not yet known, Mr. Langston said. It may involve ransomware, allowing culprits to demand some sort of ransom. 
The intent may also have been to throw the healthcare system into disarray by making it harder to fill prescriptions or to bill for care in a timely manner. You have a concentration of mission-critical services for the entire sector, which represents a concentration of risk, said John Riggie, the National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk for the American Hospital Association. It has been advising hospitals to be careful about connecting to change or affected businesses. The industry has seen an increasing number of these kinds of assaults, said Cliff Steinhauer, Director of Information Security and Engagement at the National Cybersecurity Alliance, a nonprofit group. According to federal officials, large breaches of healthcare data have nearly doubled from 2018 to 2022, including a spike in the number involving ransomware. Patients have had to go to different facilities, resulting in delays in care, according to a recent report. Under federal law, patients must eventually be notified if their information is the subject of some sort of breach. People will be alerted even if their information does not appear to have become publicly available. It's worse if we find out that the information is for sale on the dark web, said Mr. Steinauer. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. New York Democrats offer map that is tinted only a little blue. By Nicholas Fandos. A day after rejecting a congressional map proposed by a bipartisan redistricting commission, Democrats in New York unveiled new district lines on Tuesday designed to help the party retake the House majority this fall. Yet their plan exhibits surprising restraint. Although a pair of swing districts would become more Democratic, lawmakers in Albany left the partisan makeup of 24 of the state's 26 districts largely intact. The middle ground approach reflects a desire to avoid another protracted court fight, like the one in New York that helped swing control of the House to Republicans in 2022, while still better positioning Democrats in key districts. The most salient changes would affect districts in central New York and on Long Island. By shifting the districts three or four points leftward, the map would endanger Representative Brandon Williams, a Syracuse Republican, and clear an easy path to re-election for Tom Suozzi, a Democrat, after he flipped a seat in a special election this month. The Democratic map would also unwind changes proposed by the Bipartisan Commission that would have made the Hudson Valley District represented by Representative Mark Molinaro, a Republican, more conservative. The new district would look more like his current one, where President Biden won 52% of the vote in 2020. Lawmakers in Albany were expected to vote to finalize the lines as soon as Wednesday. If enacted, they would govern elections through 2030. At this point, clarity of the lines is becoming more important than perfection, said Steve Israel, a former New York congressman who once led Democrats' House campaign operation. The map may be imperfect for Democrats, but it does give them a decent foundation to win back the House, he said. Overall, Democratic officials predicted the map would probably yield 18 safe Democratic seats, six Republican seats, and two toss-ups. When Mr. Swazi is sworn in on Wednesday, the state will have 16 Democratic representatives and 10 Republicans. The potential gains in New York would help Democrats nationally as they try to erase Republicans' paper-thin House majority, but they would most likely not be enough to offset Republicans' expected pickups from a more aggressive new gerrymander in North Carolina. One prominent House elections analyst, Dave Wasserman, called the New York map a mild-moderate gerrymander. Two redistricting experts disagreed. Nicholas Stephanopoulos, a Harvard law professor who studied the issue, called it pretty much a model of neutrality. Samuel Wang, a director of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, said that the map seemed fair and that his group would likely grade at an A or a B. Privately, Democrats close to Representative Hakeem Jeffries, the House Minority Leader involved in its drawing, 
sold the map as a targeted partisan improvement that they believed could withstand the kind of legal challenge that fell to more aggressive Democratic gerrymander in 2022. Mr. Jeffries declined to comment. But other Democrats in New York and Washington denounced the proposal as a stinging disappointment, particularly after the party spent nearly two years remaking the state's top court and fighting before judges for the chance to let Democratic supermajorities in Albany redo the current court-drawn lines. It's hard not to look at these proposed maps and think, what is the point of all this, said Evan Roth-Smith, a Democratic consultant who works on house races in New York. He pointed to Republican-led states like North Carolina that have enacted aggressive gerrymanders with little regard for public opinion. When we find ourselves in the same position, we wuss out, Mr. Roth-Smith said. It's a shame. Republicans seemed to confirm his assessment. A day after loudly warning that they would sue to stop any map that was too partisan, party leaders were largely muted on Tuesday. Though no final decisions have been made, two senior Republicans involved in the process indicated that they would be unlikely to file suit after seeing the new lines. We're in a blue state, and I think these could actually be worse, said William Barkley, the Republican leader in the Assembly. He added that the Republican congressional delegation was not upset. The New York Constitution bans drawing district lines to help incumbents or a particular party. Democrats argued that the changes they proposed had either been approved by the Bipartisan Redistricting Commission or could be explained by attempts to reunite counties or demographic groups that are currently split between existing districts. We are confident, said Speaker Carl E. Heasty. Still, there was little doubt which party the map would benefit. By proposing lines that would stretch the Syracuse district further south to pick up Cortland, a Democratic town, the legislature's map would change the district from one Mr. Biden won by 7.6 percentage points to one he would have won by 11.6 percentage points. Mr. Williams, the first-term Republican who represents the district, won by less than one point in 2022. After Democrats spent $15 million to elect Mr. Swazi on Long Island, the new lines would require far less money and energy to re-elect him this fall. The district would lose Massapequa, a Republican stronghold in Nassau County, in exchange for a more moderate North Shore community in Suffolk County, changing Mr. Biden's eight-point advantage in the district into a nearly 11.1. Mr. Molinaro's district is unlikely to get much easier for Democrats, but the proposed contours keep a lane open for their candidate, Josh Riley. The commission's proposed lines were so much less favorable that Mr. Riley had been considering running for the Syracuse seat instead, according to Democrats familiar with his thinking. Democrats left two other Republican-held swing districts, Anthony D. Esposito's 4th District and Mike Lawler's 17th District, virtually untouched. Democratic challengers there were furious, but party leaders said they were confident about their chances to flip both seats, where voters sided with Mr. Biden by double digits. Today, residents of the 17th District woke up to the only news that matters. They're still being represented by an anti-choice enabler of MAGA extremism. Mondaire Jones, Mr. Lawler's Democratic challenger, said, adding that he was confident that he would win in November. Democrats declined to improve the Hudson Valley District of Representative Pat Ryan, an endangered Democrat, or to take another shot at converting Representative Nicole Maliotaki's conservative Staten Island seat into a Democratic pickup opportunity. Justin Brannon, a member of the New York City Council who is said to be exploring a run for that seat, did little to hide his feelings. When Republicans have the pen, they stab us in the neck, he wrote. Elsewhere in New York City, the Democrats' map would largely copy changes proposed by the commission that have little partisan effect, but appear to be designed to benefit some incumbents. In one prominent case, Mr. Jeffrey's condo 
would be drawn back into his Brooklyn district. In another closely scrutinized change, Representative Jamal Bowman, a Democrat who represents parts of the Bronx in Westchester, stands to pick up Co-op City, a predominantly black community in the Bronx that he lost when the new lines were drawn in 2022. Mr. Bowman and Mr. Jeffries had argued that the removal of Co-op City had split a community of interest and degraded the black vote in Mr. Bowman's 16th district. Allies of Mr. Bowman were ready to claim it as a victory on Tuesday, as he faces a bitter primary fight against George Latimer, the Westchester County executive. But it was not immediately clear that the change would be enough to meaningfully tip the primary race in either direction, since Mr. Bowman would lose largely black portions of Wakefield in the Bronx. Power of U.S. Agencies is Challenged in Case About Gun Accessory by Abby Van Sickle A simple device that speeds up a semi-automatic weapon's rate of fire is at the center of a case that could cast a shadow over a government agency's ability to regulate firearms. For Michael Cargill, a fierce defender of gun rights who sells firearms in Austin, the accessory, a bump stock, was until 2017 a niche item on the shelves of his store, Central Texas Gunworks. It mainly appealed to people who were injured or disabled, like veterans who needed support firing a gun, or by people who just wanted to have fun, he said. But that year, a high-stakes gambler stationed on the 32nd floor of a Las Vegas hotel opened fire on a country music festival, killing 60 people and injuring hundreds. In his arsenal were a dozen AR-15-style rifles outfitted with the device. Government officials swiftly called for a ban, eliciting alarm among gun store owners like Mr. Cargill, 54, a gregarious army veteran who said that the mugging and assault of his grandmother had shaped his views on gun control. I was one of the only people who said, hold on, wait a minute, said Mr. Cargill, who has challenged the ban and is represented by the new Civil Liberties Alliance, a legal advocacy group that primarily challenges what it views as unlawful uses of administrative power. This is insane that anyone would go along with this. We need to stop this now, he said. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court will consider whether the Trump administration acted lawfully in enacting a ban that makes it illegal to buy or possess the part. It is not a case that turns on the Second Amendment. Rather, it is one of a number of challenges aimed at limiting the reach of administrative agencies, in this instance, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. During the Trump administration, the bump stock ban cropped up as a rather glaring example of unlawful administrative power, said Philip Hamburger, a founder of the New Civil Liberties Alliance. This rule turned half a million people into felons overnight. That's not a power that the Constitution gives to administrative agencies, so it deserved a lawsuit. In a brief to the court, the Solicitor General, Elizabeth B. Prelogar, arguing for the government, said that reversing the ban threatens significant harm to public safety. Bump stocks are machine guns because they allow a shooter to fire automatically more than one shot by a single function of the trigger, Ms. Prelogar wrote. The case hinges on whether bump stocks convert semi-automatic rifles into machine guns. The device hooks onto a rifle's stock, the part of the gun that is held against the shoulder, and harnesses the energy from the gun's kickback to bump the stock back and forth, allowing the weapon to fire faster. The Bureau enacted the ban in 2018 by clarifying its interpretation of the National Firearms Act of 1934, which makes it a crime to make or own a machine gun, saying it extended to bump stocks. Under federal law, a machine gun is defined as any weapon which shoots is designed to shoot or can readily be restored to shoot automatically more than one shot without manual reloading by a single function of the trigger. At issue is whether the ATF overstepped its bounds in enacting a ban without congressional action. A ruling against the agency could undermine its authority to regulate firearms and accessories. The day before the ban went into effect, Mr. Cargill strolled into the ATF office in Austin 
handed over two bump stocks, and announced his lawsuit. Mr. Cargill said he hoped gun owners would pay close attention, even though the case does not center on the Second Amendment. It doesn't matter if you're pro-gun or anti-gun, he said. An agency can't do this. The president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Mark Chenoweth, said the case fit in with other legal challenges by the group. ATF is completely misinterpreting existing law to reach this far-fetched result, Mr. Chenoweth said in an email, and it flip-flopped from the interpretation it maintained for over a decade, including during the entirety of the Obama administration. Mr. Chenoweth declined to discuss the organization's donors, but he said that the group receives support from a wide variety of donors. NCLA is completely independent and not part of any other organization, umbrella group, or donor entity, Mr. Chenoweth wrote. Federal tax documents show the group has received at least $1 million from the conservative Charles Koch Foundation. Mr. Chenoweth previously served as a counsel for legal reform for Koch Industries. The lead lawyer in the case is Jonathan F. Mitchell, best known for drafting anti-abortion laws that ultimately led the Supreme Court to abolish the constitutional right to the procedure. Mr. Mitchell, who declined to comment, also recently argued on behalf of former President Donald Trump to challenge the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove him from the state's primary ballot. The lethal potential of a bump stock, which retailed for less than $200 when it first went to market in 2010, came into startling view in October 2017. That month, Stephen Paddock, 64, took aim at thousands of concertgoers, firing more than 1,000 rounds of ammunition over about 11 minutes. It remains the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. Investigators found about a dozen rifles modified with bump stocks in his hotel suite. The day after, Mr. Cargill's store sold out of bump stocks. Whenever something happens like a shooting incident or something like that and people think the government is going to ban a particular part, people then want to purchase them, Mr. Cargill said. Unusual alliances emerged to ban a bump on bump stocks, but then there were signs from the start that the politically diversive move could be open to challenges. Lawmakers, including several leading Republicans, signaled openness to prohibiting the device. Even the National Rifle Association endorsed tighter restrictions. Spurred in part by the mounting political pressure, Mr. Trump, a vocal supporter of the Second Amendment, vowed to enact a ban. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. New Mexico Inquiry into How Subscriptions at Meta Lure Predators by Michael H. Keller and Jennifer Valentino DeVries. The New Mexico Attorney General, who last year sued Meta, alleging that it did not protect children from sexual predators and had made false claims about its platform safety, announced on Monday that his office would examine how the company's paid subscription services attract predators. Attorney General Raul Torres said he had formally requested documentation from the social media company about subscriptions on Facebook and Instagram, which are frequently available on children's accounts run by parents. Instagram does not allow users under 13, but accounts that focus entirely on children are permitted as long as they are managed by an adult. The New York Times published an investigation on Thursday into girl influencers on the platform, reporting that the so-called mom-run accounts charge followers up to $19.99 a month for additional photos as well as chat sessions and other extras. The Times found that adult men subscribe to the accounts, including some who actively participate in forums where people discuss the girls in sexual terms. This deeply disturbing pattern of conduct puts children at risk, and persists despite a wave of lawsuits and congressional investigations, Mr. Torres said in a statement. Mr. Torres filed a complaint in December that accused Meta of enabling harmful activity between adults and minors on Facebook and Instagram, and failing to detect and remove such activity when it was reported. 
The allegations were based in part on findings from accounts Mr. Torres's office created, including one for a fictitious 14-year-old girl that received an offer of $180,000 to appear in a pornographic video. Although Instagram's rules prohibit users under 18 from offering subscriptions, the mom-run accounts sidestepped that restriction. I found the reporting from the New York Times on Meta creating a market funded by child predators to be deeply disturbing, Mr. Torres said. After reading the Times story, I sent Meta a new request for documents based on the alarming findings. Instagram introduced subscriptions in 2022. The added feature has come as social media companies compete fiercely to attract people engaged in the so-called creator economy. Instagram does not take a cut from the subscription revenues, but it benefits when influencers and other popular users choose the platform to build their fan base. The Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday that Meta staff members had raised alarms about the rollout of the subscription service. The article quoted unnamed Meta employees, saying that some parents knew that they were producing content for other adults' sexual gratification. Some of these accounts include outtakes, behind-the-scenes photos, and other exclusive content in their subscription offerings, which the parents view as a good way to earn extra money for the girl influencers. Many mothers told the Times that they spent countless hours blocking creepy men from following the accounts, which many continue to run even after their daughters become teenagers. Others said the large following was beneficial in promoting their daughters on Instagram. A group of more than 40 other state attorneys general also sued Meta in state and federal court last year, alleging that its products were harmful to teens and young adolescents, and that the company was aware of such harms. A Meta spokesman, Andy Stone, in a statement on Monday, did not address Mr. Torres's new request for information. He reiterated previous responses to legal actions against the company. Child exploitation is a horrific crime, and online predators are determined criminals, he said. We use sophisticated technology, hire child safety experts, report content to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and share information and tools with other companies and law enforcement, including state attorneys general, to help root out predators. Army will slash thousands of jobs and shift to counter Russian and Chinese threats. By Helene Cooper. The U.S. Army is cutting 24,000 positions as the Pentagon continues to shift its priority to countering Chinese and Russian military might after two decades of focusing on the fight against terrorism, according to a new Army document. The cuts are in line with the national defense strategy begun by President Donald Trump and largely endorsed by the Biden administration that emphasizes rising threats to the United States from an emboldened Russia and China. Army numbers swelled to almost 600,000 during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but the end of those conflicts has contributed to a steady decrease as soldiers returned to the garrison. The job cuts, reported earlier by the Associated Press, also implicitly acknowledge the recruiting woes that have plagued the Army, and indeed other military services, in recent years. The Army, the Navy, and the Air Force failed to meet recruiting goals last year. Army officials have been traveling to college campuses in urban areas to try to tap into underrepresented communities for recruits. The new document says the cuts will allow the Army to narrow the gap between force structure, which was designed to accommodate 494,000 soldiers, and current active duty end strength, which is set by law at 445,000. The goal now, according to the document, will be to bring the Army end strength of 470,000. Defense Department officials said that several issues have hobbled recruitment. The percentage of young Americans who qualify and are interested in military service has dropped, they note. A low unemployment rate has also meant that young people have other options. The Army will shrink excess, largely unmanned hollow force structure, 
and builds new formations equipped with new capabilities needed for large-scale combat operations, the document said. By bringing force structure and end strength into closer alignment, the Army will ensure its formations are filled at the appropriate level to maintain a high state of readiness. Defense Department officials said last year that the Army planned to cut some 3,000 positions from its special operations forces. That number would come out of the 24,000, an official said on Tuesday. For more than 20 years, American military commanders and senior defense officials have fretted over whether the focus on counterinsurgency fighting had left the military unprepared for a great powers land war. But even as the Pentagon continues its shift toward the latter, events in the Middle East spurred by the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel and Israel's resulting campaign of retribution in Gaza have underlined that the Pentagon and the army will have to do both and probably for years to come. Pentagon officials say that challenge continues to push a military that is already stretched. Added to that is the uncertainty that has surrounded the Pentagon's budget since 2011, when mandatory spending caps were put in place. The things we are reducing in our formation are actually things that are not going to make us successful on the battlefield going forward, said General Randy George, the Army Chief of Staff. He said the Army had other capabilities we want to grow and add, including those that help protect troops and Americans from drone, rocket, and even ballistic missile attacks. Condoms, weapons in the HIV fight, decline in use, worrying health experts. By Benjamin Ryan. Gay and bisexual men are using condoms less than ever, and the decline has been particularly steep among those who are young or Hispanic, according to a new study. The worrisome trend points to an urgent need for better protection strategies as the nation struggles to beat the HIV epidemic, researchers said. Over the past decade, prevention medication, known as PrEP, has helped fuel a moderate drop in HIV rates. And yet, despite persistent public health campaigns promoting the drugs, they have not been adopted in substantial numbers by Black and Hispanic men who are gay or bisexual. The use of condoms, which prevent HIV as well as other sexually transmitted infections, has been declining across the board in recent years, not just among gay men, contributing to a rise in sexually transmitted infections. Researchers said that, with so much focus on PrEP, public health officials often overlooked condoms, contributing to the drop-off in their use. The goal of promoting PrEP is a valuable one, but it has overshadowed other prevention strategies like condoms, said Stephen Goudreau, an HIV expert at the University of Washington. He led the new study and co-wrote a related editorial. A spokesman for the Center of Disease Control and Prevention acknowledged the declining condom use, but he said the agency continues to promote them. Local health departments that receive federal money for HIV prevention must include condom distribution in their strategies, for example. HIV rates have fallen in recent years, thanks in part to PrEP, but the decline in the United States, 12% from 2017 to 2021, according to government estimates, has trailed many other wealthy Western nations and even some hard-hit African countries. Gay and bisexual men are disproportionately affected. They make up just 2% of U.S. adults and 70% of new HIV cases. And infection rates are much higher in black and Hispanic gay men than in white gay men. In 2012, Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis, or PrEP, debuted amid landmark research showing that, when taken daily, antiretroviral drugs nearly eliminate the risk of contracting HIV. Within a few years, researchers established that people with successfully treated HIV could not transmit it through sex. These advances relaxed gay men's anxieties and likely hastened their abandonment of condoms, Dr. Goudreau said. Public health agencies, clinics, nonprofits, and drug companies funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into promoting PrEP, contributing to its widespread use among white gay men. But the popularity of the drug has remained relatively low among black and Hispanic men, 
who are insured at lower rates and tend to harbor greater mistrust towards doctors. The new study of condom use, published Thursday in the journal AIDS and Behavior, examined responses to a large online health survey of gay and bisexual men and teenagers from 2014 to 2019. About 10% of each year's respondents were drawn from the previous year's crop, allowing researchers to track changes over time. Among HIV-negative respondents, condoms were more popular than PrEP. In 2019, about half of participants said they used condoms inconsistently, and 17% reported consistent use. By contrast, just 12% of respondents reported having used PrEP recently. The investigators then looked at the three-quarters of respondents who were at the highest risk, those who were HIV-negative and hadn't recently used PrEP. In any given year, about two-thirds of these people said they had recently had sex without a condom. And among the subset of men who responded to consecutive surveys, the proportion reporting condomless sex rose by 3% between their first and second years. The pattern was most striking among young Hispanic people ages 15 to 25, who saw a 19% increase in condomless sex over just a year. Around the same period, HIV rates among Hispanic gay men increased by 3% per year, even as they leveled off among black gay men and fell among white gay men, according to government estimates. Dr. Carlos Saldana, an infectious disease expert at the Emory University School of Medicine, said that public health leaders in schools are failing to address the sexual health needs of young Hispanic men, including migrants. When I came to Atlanta in 2020, there was zero messaging in Spanish and culturally sensitive messaging in sexual health related to Hispanic communities, he said. Only half of high schools provided LGBTQ-inclusive sex education in the 2019-2020 school year, according to the CDC. Since then, some Republicans have ramped up efforts to strip LGBTQ-related content from schools. Lauren Nelson, an HIV researcher at Yale, noted one such law in Florida, which has a large Hispanic population and the nation's third-largest rate of new HIV diagnoses. Florida community groups should fill the educational void to ensure at-risk youth learn about prepping condoms, Dr. Nelson said. We must find new ways to invigorate young folks' interest in condoms and to expand their accessibility, he said. The federal government, too, is neglecting to shore up condom use, Dr. Goudreau said, noting that condoms are not mentioned in the official strategic plans for combating HIV issued by multiple health agencies. Carl Diefenbach, the director of the AIDS division at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, contested that premise, saying that condoms are a key part of the messaging in all of our studies. Apple Cancels Its Plans for a Self-Driving Car by Brian X. Chen Apple has canceled its plans to release an electric car with self-driving abilities, a secretive product that had been in the works for nearly a decade. The company told employees in an internal meeting on Tuesday that it had scrapped the project and that members of the group would be shifted to different roles, including in Apple's artificial intelligence division, according to a person briefed on the discussion who requested anonymity because the announcement was not public. As part of the restructuring, Kevin Lynch, an executive who had been involved in the car project, We'll report to John G. and Andrea, the company's head of artificial intelligence strategy, the person said. Apple declined to comment. The news that Apple was ending its car plan was reported earlier by Bloomberg. Though Apple has not unveiled its car to consumers, the product has for many years been one of Silicon Valley's worst-kept secrets because it was being tested on public roads. The cancellation is a rare move by Apple, which typically doesn't shelve such public and high-profile projects. The company has struggled in recent years to find new avenues for growth, as its all-important iPhone has saturated the market and people are upgrading their phones less frequently than they used to. Tim Cook, Apple's chief executive, 
has publicly hinted that Apple was interested in entering the car space. The company had also been testing hundreds of vehicles equipped with autonomous driving technology in public for many years. The car, internally codenamed Titan and Project 172, was a challenging product to develop. As parts of the division were shuttered, plants were scrapped and restarted, and dozens of workers were laid off along the way. The car, which Apple spent billions of dollars researching, had been intended as a rival to Tesla's electric vehicles, which include autonomous driving features. The product was important for Mr. Cook's legacy, as it would have countered the perception that Apple had lost its ability to innovate and come up with the next big thing. Under Mr. Cook's leadership, the company has introduced a small number of new hardware products, including the Apple Watch, which now leads the smartwatch market, the HomePod smart speaker, which flopped, and the Vision Pro, the $3,500 goggles that it released this month to rival Meta's virtual reality headsets. The company has invested heavily on developing new technologies. In the last five years, it spent $113 billion on research and development. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. Wonky British pub that was leveled is ordered to be rebuilt by Megan Specia. The Crooked House, a pub in England's West Midlands that was demolished last year after a suspicious fire, could soon be rising from the rubble after its owners were ordered to restore the pub to its former lopsided glory. The tavern, known as Britain's wonkiest pub, for its slanting walls and floors, was sold to a private developer in July 2023. About two weeks later, the pub caught fire in a suspected arson attack, and the developers who had bought it brought in the bulldozers. Locals were outraged. With the support of local politicians, they launched a public campaign to see the building restored and someone held accountable for its destruction. Now they may be one step closer to those goals becoming a reality. South Staffordshire Council, the local authority for the area where the pub once stood, on Tuesday ordered the owners to rebuild the pub within three years, restoring it using original materials and with its original character maintained. The council said in a statement that it had engaged with the owners since the demolition, but has reached a point where formal action is considered necessary. An initial attempt to reach the owners by phone and email went unanswered. The pub, located in Himley, a small village just west of Dudley, was not a listed building, which would have given it legal protection, but it was considered a heritage asset and registered on the historic environment record as a building of local importance, according to the council. Roger Lees, the leader of the South Staffordshire Council, said in a statement that a huge amount of time and resources had been put into investigating the unauthorized demolition of the pub, and the enforcement order had not been taken lightly. But we believe that it is right to bring the owners who demolished the building without consent to account, he said, and we are committed to do what we can to get the crooked house rebuilt. The building, constructed in 1765 as a farmhouse, began to slouch in the 19th century because of coal mining under its foundations. For generations, its window frames had slanted sideways, and its walls seemed to tilt at a near-gravity-defying angle, delighting both patrons and passers-by. Despite its wobbly looks, the building was structurally safe after being shored up by steel bars and other supports, but its fate had become as precarious as its appearance. In recent years, the pub had faced financial hardship like so many others across Britain, in the wake of the pandemic and amid a cost-of-living crisis. The developers who bought the building planned to convert it for alternative uses, local authorities said at the time. Then, last August, a suspicious fire broke out one Saturday night, partially destroying the building. Before the locals even had a chance to take stock, it was leveled. Last year, Staffordshire Police said it had arrested six people on suspicion of conspiracy to commit arson, 
but no one has been charged and those suspects remain on conditional bail. Marco Longhi, a member of parliament who represents the area where the pub was based, Dudley North, said the demolition of the beloved pub shook our community. So it's fantastic news that an enforcement notice has been served on the owners for demolition without consent, Mr. Longhi said in a statement posted to Facebook on Tuesday. He added that the owners would be required to rebuild the site back to its former glory, and I will not rest until the crooked house is built back brick by brick. Mr. Longhi concluded with a warning. Let this serve as a warning to anyone who wants to launch an attack on our heritage sites. You will not get away with it. Those involved in the campaign were hopeful, but realistic that it would still be some time before the pub was restored. Marie Stokes, 62, who lives in nearby Wolverhampton, has taken part in protests at the site since the pub's demolition, and said she was over the moon to hear the news of its potential restoration. I'm so proud to have been a part of it, she said through tears when reached by phone. It was a lovely pub. I had a great many memories there, with my husband who has now passed. The order, she said, was a testament to the power of a small group of committed people. I'm in for the long haul, and we aren't going anywhere, she said of the locals who demanded the return of the pub. The enforcement notice that ordered the owners to rebuild the pub can be appealed within 30 days, and if the order is not appealed or the restoration completed within three years, the owners could be prosecuted. Campaigners may find some hope from other communities that have fought similar battles before. The Carlton Tavern, a 1920s pub tucked away between newer buildings in London's Maida Vale neighborhood, was also unceremoniously destroyed in 2015, igniting local outrage. After a long public campaign, the developers who had knocked down the Carlton Tavern were also ordered to rebuild brick by brick. They may have had a slightly easier task, though. Firstly, the building was not slanting. Secondly, the Preservation Society English Heritage had done an earlier survey of the Carlton Tavern as it was being considered for historical status. During that process, the Society had created a detailed record of the pub's rooms and taken molds of its distinctive architectural features. When it was time to rebuild, there was a clear blueprint. Six years later, as Britain was emerging from a pandemic lockdown, the pub finally reopened its doors. Facing Aging with Friends, Fancy Footwork, and Fireball Whiskey by Colby Edmonds Martha Barnes's home was buzzing. It was a Saturday in Little Buford, North Carolina, time to get ready for the town's Mardi Gras parade, and women were zigzagging around the house, applying makeup, laughing, and calling out repeatedly for the fireball cinnamon whiskey sitting on the kitchen counter. If you want to say something, one woman hollered above the din, you better scream it. Ms. Barnes's home is not a sorority house. She's 86 years old. But for the day, it was something of the sort. The meeting spot for the bodacious bells, the town's locally famous group of rambunctious retirees, eager to win best in show for the parade, again. We're not very contained, said Ms. Barnes, who is the queen mother of the group. The Bells are a chapter of the Sweet Potato Queens, an international network of more than 6,500 women's groups that aim for a similar balance of amusement and mutual support. Throughout the year, the Bells perform in Beaufort's holiday parades and organize activities among themselves, like going to the movies, playing dominoes, and singing karaoke. But they have known one another for years, forming more than meaningful friendships. Of course, for many older people, isolation, declining health, or a lack of financial resources make getting older a cascade of challenges without easy solutions. But in an aging country in which women outlive men by about six years, the Bells are the kind of potent social network that knits older women together, as well as a window into successful aging. The number of people 65 and older in the United States grew rapidly from 2010 to 2020, 
increasing by about 15.5 million, according to the Census Bureau. That's the largest gain ever for the older population in a single decade. The gap in longevity, common to most parts of the world, reflects differences in biology, behavior, and occupations, among other factors. For example, research indicates that estrogen in women plays an important role in combating conditions such as heart disease. Women are also more often willing to seek preventative and health care than men. And studies have shown that participating in community activities and forming lasting ties in groups like the Bells is beneficial for older adults' mental health and general well-being. Li Fang Hao, a professor of preventative medicine at Northwestern University, said the positive feelings that come with seeking community, even the simple act of going to the mall or taking a walk with a friend, produce positive effects on the body. What these good hormones do is slow down our molecular aging, Dr. Howe said, because they help cells function better. It's like nutrition for us. Dr. Howe said that while it is important to not overgeneralize behaviors, men tend to value their individualism, which can deter them from joining groups. Beaufort, one of the oldest towns in North Carolina, was founded in the early 1700s as a fishing village. Now its main industry is tourism, but boats still line the town's harbor and colonial-style homes dominate the architecture. Beaufort reflects an aging America, with retirees heading civic groups and local businesses. The town has a population shy of 5,000, with a median age of 51 years old. The median age of the United States reached a new high of 38.9 years in 2022. You start on your second half of life when you move to Beaufort, Ms. Barnes said. The Beaufort chapter first met in 2001 and currently has 31 members between the ages of 57 and 92. As Queen Mother, Ms. Barnes organizes the group's meetings. Other members share in their responsibilities for planning costumes, choreography, and floats for parades. Ms. Barnes, who was born in Richmond, Virginia, and grew up in North Carolina, moved to Beaufort with her husband, Elmo, in 1979. The two had bounced around the country in California, Rhode Island, and Washington when Mr. Barnes was in the Navy. Ms. Barnes and her husband opened up a bed and breakfast that had a spice shop in the back, which is now an Airbnb. Ms. Barnes has three children, who, for the most part, still live in the area. The Queen's husbands, known as Spud Studs, help drive the Bell's decorated golf carts during parades, and some serve on their security team, which passes out water on hot days and is there in case anything goes awry. In a Southern culture that may traditionally reward constraint, the Bell's skew opposite. They like to curse and yell and stuff Nerf balls into their bras. They don't talk like blushing flowers either, as one Bell told another, you're bad to the bone, girlfriend. Only one bell has been barred from an event. She tried to go behind the counter at a local bar and grab wine. But the bells also share tender moments of affection and support, like holding hands and telling one another how beautiful they look. We're ladies, but we also know how to have fun, Ms. Barnes said. We can draw the line if we get too risque. The larger group, Sweet Potato Queens, was the creation of Jill Connor Brown in the 1980s. She is originally from Mississippi, and discovered that she lived near what is billed as the sweet potato capital of the world, Vardaman, Mississippi. She volunteered to be the queen at the annual Farmers Festival, and although that dream did not pan out, she entered herself and her friends in the Jackson, Mississippi, St. Patrick's Day Parade as queens. She started writing books at age 30 about her experience, with some of her best-selling books ranging in topics from raising children to quips on financial planning, all rooted in Ms. Connor Brown's perspective as a Southern woman. Now 71, Ms. Connor Brown has seen her books spawn Sweet Potato Queen chapters in more than 30 countries and across the United States, not just the South. Members convene annually for a parade in Jackson. 
there is also a Sweet Potato Queens musical that premiered in Houston in 2016. Miss Connor Brown said the Jackson Parade, held around St. Patrick's Day, is a healing event for all the women who come, with people crossing paths and forming intimate connections. When a queen from Arizona died of cancer, her chapter sent some of her ashes to Ms. Connor Brown. The Bells ask that potential members read Ms. Connor Brown's first book and pay $35 in annual dues. Generally, the Bells and other Sweet Potato Queen chapters have members older than 50. The experiences are universal, she said. Life is hard on a good day. I don't care who you are. Throughout the years, the Bells have helped one another through the challenges of aging. A lot of women in Beaufort and in the Bells are widowed. But when someone loses a spouse, a queen does not have to face the struggle alone. The women are there with their red lipstick and funeral casserole, said Pat Wesson, a member of the Bells and the owner of Senior Resource Connections, which puts together plans for people whose parents are aging. Her late husband had dementia and Parkinson's. Three members, who call themselves queens or Bells interchangeably, have died since Ms. Barnes has been queen mother. And when that happens, the Bells spring into action. The Bells once helped the out-of-town family of a member who had passed away by cleaning out her house, and they also dedicated a float to her. Some of the ties straddle the Bells and their lives outside the group. Ms. Barnes' sister, Marcia Parker, 92, is also a Bell. The two lost their husbands just 11 days apart over two years ago. During their Mardi Gras parade, people honked and cheered for the Bells, who were dressed as butterflies and were the final group in the procession and the self-proclaimed grand finale. They danced to Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz, and after the parade, were met by many congratulations from passers-by who said they were brilliant. They gathered at their usual spot in a bar's courtyard, where they learned the news. They had won the parade again. With their glasses raised, it was time for a toast, which they shouted in unison, Long live the queens! You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the February 28th edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.